This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 89 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Benedict Allen is my guest today. He is the author of several books, including most recently, Explorer, The Quest for Adventure and the Great Unknown. I ask him about his urge to explore and about what I poorly articulate as his old school mode of traveling the world. We chat about making bonds while traveling, about homecomings, and about family. Anyway, before we start the episode today, just a note to say, please tell your friends about the podcast, leave a review on the Apple Podcast app or whichever podcasting app you use, and support the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. Lastly, to stay up to date with travel, nature, and place writing news, join the hundreds of other subscribers and sign up for Genius Loci, my free monthly email roundup of news and links at jeremybassetti.com. That's with two S's and two T's. A new roundup goes out in the first of the month. So now, here is Benedict Allen. My guest today is Benedict Allen, and we're talking about his new book, Explorer, The Quest for Adventure and the Great Unknown. The book was published in the UK in March 2022 and will be available in hardback in the US and in other regions in June. So Benedict, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy. So you write in the new book's introduction uh, that the book is about the urge we all share to explore. So I was wondering if you can just kind of start off by telling me about your urge to explore. Yeah, well, I think it began as a child. Well, I know it began as a child, but I, I think there was a sort of instant where, which was absolutely crucial, which was my dad flying overhead. My dad was a test pilot mm-hmm. and there was a British plane called the Vulcan bomber, which at its time uh, it carried the nuclear deterrent for the UK. And so it was immensely exciting having your dad as a pilot, but knowing your dad was flying this prototype Vulcan bomber, which is a very, very charismatic aircraft. It's like a like the Concorde, a Delta-winged aircraft. Uh, to know that it was your dad at the controls was immensely exciting. And I was actually born in Cheshire, which is towards the north of England, simply so that my dad could be at a certain airfield to develop this this extraordinary airplane. And so my dad used to fly over the back garden with this aircraft. And I remember one day when he tipped the wings of this aircraft uh, to signal it was him at the controls. Hmm. And I think this is what began my quest to be some sort of explorer, someone who'd be a little bit like my dad, some sort of pioneer, someone who pushed themselves to their limits. and that, uh, I, I, by the age of 10, certainly I had this idea in my mind that I would become an explorer, which is ridiculous, really. But, <laughs> uh, you know, even back then, and this is the 1960s, uh, it was thought that the world had been explored and the days of exploration were you know, about, well, 
there's you, you know the names uh david livingstone and all these characters you know from way way back in the past hm stanley all these characters these were explorers and people thought well that's it now it's a time for space exploration perhaps and in fact one of the first well the first man to walk on the moon neil armstrong he was a test pilot like mm-hmm. my dad so it's very much the idea that you know exploration had moved on and i suppose we think of that uh, uh, even more so now but for me as a little child perhaps i was a little bit of a dreamer a bit of a romantic i knew i couldn't quite be a test pilot but i come to this idea this dream all the way through my childhood so before we began recording you turned the camera around and you showed me a cabinet of curiosities uh, some some artifacts and things from around the globe i'm uh, guessing that your father brought back so was was your Kind of urge to explore born about this um, potential to to get on a plane and travel but also in in, in some ways fueled by these artifacts and these f- kind of foreign um, artifacts and cultures uh, that your dad introduced you to yeah i think these objects made me believe it was real this dream i had that actually there was a world out there that mm. could be sampled could be explored and uh yeah there were things like a, a little well it's a weaver bird's nest in this cabinet and uh those sort of just ordinary simple things uh there's a, there's seed pods from the african savanna somewhere or other uh there's a little snake in a bottle of methylated spirits all sorts of little things my dad brought back and yeah they fed my curiosity but i think it was this belief especially as people kept on saying, as I grew older and older, still believing somehow I could be an explorer, uh, I, I think it may be able to cling on to this dream somehow that I thought, yeah, somehow or other, it's not just a fantasy, that there is a world out there that uh, is exciting to me. And uh, the reality was, of course, when I got to about 18, I, I realised I didn't have any money. Uh, perhaps I realised earlier, but it, it became blindingly obvious by by that stage that I, it was going to be very hard to carry on this profession, um, or start it, in fact. Uh, so I, w- I worked in a warehouse just to get a bit of money together for my first expedition, um, which was a ridiculous idea, really, of crossing the north of the Amazon basin. There was, there was a, due to be a road shot through northern Brazil, and I thought uh, I, I should go out there and, and try and uh, see what was about to be destroyed by this road. Um, so that was my first dream to, to head off to try and uh, sample the Amazon basin. And by then I'd read environmental science at university. So mm-hmm. I had a f- much more of a, a grip really on reality. Uh, and I felt there was actually a need for people like me to, to go out and be a witness to what the world was like out there. Mm-hmm. And your, your book recounts this first expe- expedition to South America um, but I just wanted to kind of ask you here because it, it seems like it, it feels like your mode, uh, your your method of exploring the world and traveling the world, it feels a little bit old school. You know, I'm thinking here about the the people that you just mentioned, people like Stanley Livingston, maybe Fawcett, um, you know, people, explorers of the late 19th and early 20th century who like went off literally into the jungle and, and were meeting peoples who hadn't yet been touched by modernity. You know what I mean? So, mm. so like, um, does being an explorer mean something differently to you? Or um, especially now in the 21st century, is is there kind of like a, a shift in this idea for you? Yeah, it, 
for me, it's, it's, it's become quite a complicated question because although, as you said right at the beginning, Jeremy, I, I believe uh, we all are explorers, or at least that's my position in the book, you know, this to me is a very, very human urge that we have since the beginning of humanity gone off to see what is over the horizon. I, th- I think it's absolutely fundamental to all of us. Nonetheless, because I didn't have any money at the beginning, I oh, in fact, now I should say as well, <laughs> um, but right at the beginning, uh, when no one obviously wanted to sponsor me because I was just, you know, just a, a young bloke who didn't know anything, uh, why would anyone want to sponsor an expedition by this person who's prepared to head off into the Amazon? Uh, I, by the fact that I didn't have any money, what I had to do was turn to the local people. Uh, as I said, I worked in a warehouse, off I went to the Amazon on my first expedition, and I, I said to the, the local people, frontiersmen, indigenous people, whoever I met, uh, could you help me? And by and large, they didn't have any money either. And it it changed my relationship with them, people who normally would either be ignored by explorers or would be used as guides by explorers. They became absolutely instrumental to my expeditions because my I was alone, uh, very, very vulnerable indeed. And I began to realize there was this was actually quite an asset that if I went very, very simply on the terms of the local people, then uh, I could get by on my expeditions and solve my money problem, which is uh, <laughs> that I didn't have any. Um, so to one extent, I was like the Victorian explorers and uh, bearing in mind, yeah, this is 1980s. I was the last of that generation who, last of humanity, really. Uh, this is the last time, last 10, 20 years, when humans would actually be able to travel over whole valleys, whole regions, uh, and be the first witness of their kind to those valleys. And then, uh, you know, this time really has gone now. Mm-hmm. So that was something from another era, you could say. And yes, I think my, I think my attitude to the local people is very different from a Victorian attitude. It was very much that uh, I was seeing them eye to eye, people that I was having to trust with my life. I think this would be rare back in the Victorian days when essentially people felt they were members of a superior race or right. that, that's a quote from Livingston. Uh, it, it's somehow there to make their mark. And I very quickly realised that if I was going to survive at all, I had to be uh, very, very humble. In fact, I was often shoved with the children of indigenous people because their skill level was so great. Uh, they had a huge amount to teach me. So there, there's that aspect. But, um, yeah, I, I've now made a virtue of that vulnerability. I don't take a GPS. I don't take a phone. So, again, people think, oh, I'm backward. I'm sort of from a, a previous era. But for me, it's all about disconnecting. And the weird thing is I think it's actually more valuable than ever that certain of us disconnect and and head off. You know, we we talk about echo chambers, you know, mm-hmm. so connected through social media and so on. But actually, it, it, this is a very dangerous state to be in. And it strikes me it's more important than ever, as I say, that some of us separate ourselves off. And I see that as part of my job. Um, so, yeah, I I am a, a bit of an old uh, old school explorer in that I don't take companions. I, I I am very vulnerable out there, but on the other hand, I feel it's a very modern thing that we need to do, mm-hmm. be a bit more vulnerable and huh. accept differences. Right. Yeah, I guess one of the other differences um, 
between what you did and what people from the Victorian era did was you, you're not bringing calipers, right? You're not measuring the skulls and, and, and doing this kind of superior race kind of study, um, anthropological study, but it seems like some of the, um, not, not, not the methods and maybe I'm not articulating this well, but it seems like, you know, what you're doing by abandoning the, um, or disconnecting, letting go, kind of being at the, the, the mercy and the generosity of, of other people, um, is kind of like an old, um, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. It just seems like it's a, it's an old school, old school thing to do and, and quite, um, humbling, you know? Yeah. I, there's another sort of strange irony, which is that although even now when I go on my expeditions, I don't take technology, uh, and yet I've begun, I unwittingly became the pioneer of, of the video selfie. Uh, so, <laughs> um, <laughs> very strangely, I mean, the BBC said, look, you're doing these mad expeditions. Please, can you take along this new thing called a cam recorder? called a camcorder and it's a little video camera and just just record as you go along so that's what i did without any training as a presenter i made six series for the bbc just recording whatever happened and um it was electri- electrifying i think for the audience because uh, suddenly here was reality there's no staging no camera crew uh it was just even though if i died i died uh but I, as it happened i didn't uh, but i got through huge uh well survived all sorts of uh, misadventures um and uh, this this became a new thing so um weirdly i became a pioneer of something that uh, was wonderful really because it allowed me to uh I, th- I think part of the duty of my job is, is that i report back i think it's part of right. what i should be doing and suddenly i was reporting back not to a few thousand people who kindly bought my book but to millions of people around the world it was a very Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in, in the book elsewhere in the book, you, you mentioned uh, your experiences at the Royal Geographical Society, which also has this kind of uh, rich tradition and exploration and also has the, the underside with kind of its association with colonialism and other injustices. Mm-hmm. But um, you, you mentioned in the book that, you know, this idea of the, the modern explorer um, doesn't come with the baggage of social distinctions and, um, kind of status. And I was wondering if um, you could unpack this idea um, as the explorer or the adventurer um, of social distinction in the context of of Great Britain. I was very aware that I was a, a white, privileged male. Uh, I was less aware then, um, <laughs> back in my 1920s, you know, it, not the white giant. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Back in when, it, when I was in my 20s, uh, yeah, the indigenous people were in the Amazon, northern Amazon. I was My nickname was Loco Benedito, Mad Benedict, or <laughs> the Mad White Giant, because I'm almost two metres tall, six foot four. Uh, so I was seen as uh, this extraordinary sort of mad character. Why would anyone risk his life uh, walking day after day through the rainforest? Um I, I think it's a term of endearment and astonishment, really, but as far as the locals were concerned about then. But now, uh, now I'm more sort of educated in the, the history of exploration. I'm very well aware that I'm one more person uh, of, of my culture who's gone to investigate the world, but very much on my terms. And 
uh, I, I wrote in one of my early books, if you travel with a map or you rely on a map, all you'll ever come back with is another better version of that same map. So I was quite a sort of what would have been called bullshy uh, young man in those days. You know, I was, I was quite, I wouldn't say anti-establishment, but I was very much determined, rather proud, maybe arrogant, determined to do it on my terms. And that was meant to be the terms of the local people. I thought, I'm going to mm-hmm. do it differently. And what I did eventually was to undergo an initiation ceremony to become a man as strong as a crocodile, which was a traditional ceremony in Papua New Guinea. I'd narrowly survived my very first expedition to the Amazon. Uh, and I thought, what I've got to do is try and learn the local point of view, because that's the only way I'm going to survive here. Uh, and that's that's what I did. I was taken away and kept with local people, the Niara, they're called, in the middle sea pick of Papua New Guinea. I was kept in a, a screened-off area and uh, repeatedly beaten five times a day for as long as it took me and the other initiates to become a man as strong as a crocodile. It took six weeks, I have to say. <laughs> um, and it was a total nightmare. Um, and um, I was also scarred up and down my chest and back with bamboo blades. It is meant to represent the crocodile marks. <clears throat> um, this was uh, part of my bid, I think, to, to perhaps unpack, to use your phrase, uh, this weight, this uh this almost uh instinctive thing that we've had as uh as white people as europeans to dominate uh, mm-hmm. it's part of our culture that we uh had centuries essentially of trying to assert ourselves on local people it could be the french <laughs> that we're asserting ourselves on or it could be people further afield um I was trying to get rid of this. And I think I had survivor's guilt. You know, I'd narrowly survived this first expedition. I, I mentioned it at the beginning. I tried to cross the Amazon basin. Uh, sorry, uh, northern Amazon. Uh, been attacked by gold miners. Uh, ended up uh, escaping in my canoe. The canoe capsized. And I walked out of the forest day after day. Got two sorts of malaria. Um, so I narrowly escaped my first adventure. Uh, escaped dying on it. And... Um, yeah, it's not surprising really because I knew so little. But I think I had this desire to uh, hear from the locals who didn't see these places as a threat, whether it was the Amazon, Borneo, New Guinea, they saw it as simply their home and it provided them f- with food, medicine, shelter. And I thought, if I could tune into this, if I could tune into this extraordinary resource, um, <clears throat> not only would I live longer, but I'd see the world in a different way, the local way. And as years went by and I became more experienced, more at home, I suppose, in places that I had seen as hostile that were regarded and under regarded even now on TV shows as, as hostile. Uh, if I could get away from that and see these places as a place that I could survive in and, and thrive in, then um, I'd have uh, as near as possible a local point of view. I never, of course, see the world as the locals did, as other initiates did, even mm-hmm. in New Guinea, that ceremony. But at least maybe I get a glimpse through their window, this fast, fast vanishing window of that, this or that culture. And uh, that's what I began to set my mind to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like this phrase that you just used uh, about feeling feeling more at home, because in, in some ways, if I 
I'm reading in, into your book, it feels like your book is uh, about homecomings, right? Um, mm. You reflect on what it means to be an explorer, but not just of the world, but of, of our past lives and our and our past, um, I guess, families. As you mentioned here, you're, you, you said that you reflect back on the first trips, um, but also your return trips to the villages and to meet these people who uh, once and perhaps still think of you as as family, you know? Um, you mentioned the ceremony that you went through. This is a, a bond that you're forming with these people, like a familial, strong bond, is it not? Yeah, and it was a huge privilege. I, I jokingly, well, so half jokingly, uh, said it was a nightmare. Uh, and it was. It was very, very tough, this experience. Of course, it was designed to be tough. Mm -hmm. We, as young men, I suppose I was in my mid-twenties, uh, it was one of the older of the initiates, there were about 30 of us. Um, we were going through hell. And what the ceremony was all about was learning to work together, to combine together, which is what you've got to do living in a tough environment, such as the malarial swamps where we were. But it was also about learning your own strengths and your own weaknesses and learning those of your age group, of your peers. And um, having gone through this traumatic experience together of course we were bonded together in the most extraordinary way and um i don't think i thought it thought it through particularly uh, when i decided to go through the ceremony or was invited to go through the ceremony i just thought this is the right thing to do and uh, one young man who i used to go hunting with said look if you call yourself an explorer you should do whatever it takes and what it takes for us to live out here is to go through the ceremony. So I thought, oh, I'm up for that, you know, um, <laughs> not really knowing what the whole thing involves. It's secret and sacred and so on. But um, what it did was give me a sense of uh, belonging that I could never really have had, I think, if I had spent just an entire generation in the same community and uh, simply being an anthropologist or an adventurer who was just observing as an outsider. I could never re really be a truly an insider, but nonetheless, uh, when I went back 30 years later to, to, to visit the community, extraordinary thing happened. They're all the young men, the so-called one banis, that is the people who've been through the ceremony at the same time as me, who I had this bond with, there they all were waiting to escort me into the village in headdresses and so on, beating drums and singing songs that we all sang together as initiates. Uh, most extraordinary feeling to be welcomed home to a place that culturally hadn't been my home really. And yet I had that connection, that sense of belonging. And I think for me as a so-called explorer, it has become about trying to make that connection, make that connection with a place that's unfamiliar misunderstood or apparently unexplored it's all about trying to reach into the beyond into the other mm -hmm. yeah family um as we just mentioned um and and the future are, are threads that run throughout the book um you know as you as you mentioned earlier in our conversation you said uh that your book begins with the, these memories of your father as a pilot and in, in his career um, but as someone now who's a father himself, um, and, and I must say here that I love seeing those daily drawings, you leave your kids in their lunchboxes. Uh, you know, I think that you're putting those in their lunchboxes as a little surprise. But um, as a father yourself, how do you hope your 
children will will remember your actions and and your career do you think that this will influence them the way that your father influenced you yeah the i should just explain about the lunch boxes this is uh, on twitter i just i share <laughs> what what i just do every i have three or four minutes spare and anyone who's a parent of young children knows this the the, the nightmare the uh, the the chaos, the the hectic moments you have when you're trying to pack everyone, send them off to school, you know, get their snacks ready, get their hairbrush, get their get them to just be ready to get out of the door by, in my case, seven thirty-five. That's our deadline. I just have a moment to do a little scribble on my son Freddie's lunchbox, just to encourage him through the day. He hates school. He's twelve years old, and he just hasn't settled <laughs> into school. And I, I, I don't know if that's because he's like me, a bit of a sort of outsider, perhaps, but one way or another, I just want to encourage him every day. And yeah, I, I, I find myself thinking back to my time, uh, how when I was a, a boy, my mind was always elsewhere. Um, and it's hugely rewarding, of course, if you've had a, a life when you've, you've been away from family and loved ones and friends for months at a time, each one of my expeditions really, I suppose, on average, probably six months long, and I was incredibly isolated, no phone, no Western companions. Uh, so very vulnerable, very cut off from my own world. And to be now able to have my own children, have my own base that's safe uh, for myself and for them is, is a wonderful thing. And, of course, uh, children are very obviously explorers. As I said, we're all explorers by nature, but you see it more obviously in children because they're inquisitive, they're running around, they're enthusiastic, and um, it's brilliant to pass on stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, and to be reinforced with this idea that uh, exploration carries on into the future. It, it's very important for me that children that I speak to at schools around the UK or around the world uh that they believe that there is a world to be explored out of there because again it, again again children are just told exploration belongs to the past it belong, belongs to sort of elite uh i want to undermine both those ideas yes i was privileged in that i had a dad who was a test pilot and he could inspire me and some people won't have that inspirational role model mm -hmm. uh, but uh, i also think it's important that uh, people believe exploration is something that's happening now. We've only identified, I think, eight or nine percent of the species on our planet. We don't understand even those ones, but we've given them a name. Uh, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. We all know the ecological crisis our planet is in and so on, climate change, uh, e ecosystem destruction. So we know about that and there's so much work to be done and it doesn't need to be done by people like me who did have this extraordinary time back in the 80s, 90s, with the whole areas that weren't mapped by outsiders, um, you know, the, the world's never been more accessible to all of us to be witnesses, to interpret what's out there and report back. Mm -hmm. And it seems yet that exploration is all the more important in a world where, you know, kids, children, young adults are seemingly, not because of COVID, uh, but seemingly not exploring the world as much as we did as, as kids ourselves. I'm in central Florida and the old pine forests, they're all coming down for 
housing developments. And of course, we didn't have iPads in our hands and all the, these things to distract us. But I fondly remember as a child running through the pine forests and, you know, getting stuck by prickly pears and sticking rattlesnakes, you know, <laughs> running around, uh, you know, quite dangerous uh, things. And, and now it, just glancing around the neighborhood and other people's families, it seems that that sense of exploration, even if it's local exploration, isn't uh, something that is done that much. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yes, we need to do it more than ever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Benedict, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast uh, and, and speaking with me about your new book, Explore. Oh, it's been fun. I hope, we, I, hope I can explore the last of the, the pine woods. Uh, <laughs> meet, meet your local uh, rattlesnakes or whatever it is you've got there. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support.